0: Hello and welcome to E3 Energy and Efficiency with Emily. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about architecture, building science, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. I have to tell you that on today's podcast with Bronwyn, we actually just jumped right in and started talking, and I thought, I need to start recording all this great information that we have. So we're just going to jump straight into the conversation here today with Bronwyn Berry. She is an architect and a passive house consultant out in California, um, and she happened to post on one of her social media accounts that she was having difficulty getting a heating contractor to understand the low load homes that she builds. And I thought I need to talk to her. So we're actually going to jump right in on how our code is affecting the way that we build in high performance.
1: Where it actually tells folks like the, you know, the HVAC dude that's been doing the same stuff since, you know, year dot, you know, the dinosaurs were still around, Um, you know he doesn't receive any signal upstream saying well guess what you know your old way of doing things is going to be going out with the dodo and you know you need to change Um, there's literally like no forward um, signaling built into our code structures Um, and You know, here in California, we have a reach code structure and we have a green code, but none of those really also, you know, send an early signal to the market before the building code comes in behind and gets updated. So, you know, as I say, the building code is like, you know, 10, 15 years behind of where the market really should be, and where people like yourself and myself are actually already building, and it isn't—it doesn't have a way to in, look at a building in an integrated, like holistic way. It, it's got this; it's siloed and disjointed. So, I'm also seeing the U.S. market has no integrated systems. Available, and in my passive house work, I I get to travel. Well, not so much anymore. Prior um, <laughs> I to March, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I I get to go and see what products are available in other markets, and you know, I I primarily, of course, am involved in all the passive house communities across the globe, which is an awesome you know, that's our sort of lingua franca. You can go, I can go to Sweden and I can go to Australia and I can go to Japan and China. And, you know, I can meet people that are all doing the same thing and working, you know, we all work on the same metrics, which is pretty awesome because we all understand what each other's doing. And we're building these same projects in these different climates around the world. And I see what products they have in their market. And I come home and I go like, good Lord, what is wrong with us? Um, We do not have really great, we still don't have good windows in the US. Um, I'm sorry, our US made windows generally are the pits. Um, And that again is a function of our regulatory structure. Our NFRC testing protocol doesn't give enough of a granular breakdown of real window performance. And it lumps all the U window value into this total lump sum frame, glass spacer, and um, you know, into this U window, which is completely unhelpful. You know, it's just an actually inaccurate information for each specific product uh, project. So we're, you know, we're being fed this, let's be a dipl- let me say this diplomatically. <laughs> we're being kept in the dark about how products are really performing and we're not really trained how to understand performance and break it down and then apply that to our projects. Um, and sort of going back to my rant about our, our, our lack of really good high-performance products here. Um, I was in China in October last year, so 11 months ago. I went thinking, hmm, I'm going to see some sort of pretty you know, clunky stuff and, you know, maybe some of it will be, you know, copies of the European high-performance products that I've seen and drooled over since like 2007. And I saw products in China that were like leapfrogging the high-performance stuff on the European market. I saw integrated ventilation and heat pump. Units so that um, heat recovery ventilation unit gang together with a, a heat pump for heating and cooling all in one package that looks pretty much like the the packaged um, uh, s- s- ducted um, ducted ceiling heat pump units that we can we can buy those here but Mm -hmm. they don't combine ventilation. So with heat recovery or even energy recovery. And then they added um, a thermostat with monitoring that was um, uh, temperature, relative humidity, PM 2.5, CO2 and NO on the dial. And I was kind of like, good God, that's what I need here. And how come China has this already? And there were like three or four different options. And I was like, what is wrong with us? You know, it's like, I live in California in the, which is the fifth largest economy in the world. And I work for, all my clients are tech industry. Um, Mostly I work with, um super smart tech folks who are kind of either you know middle management or founders of small companies but they're smart as all get out. So I have to be like on my toes because they've done all the research. <laughs> it's like I'm always scrambling to keep up with them. But they totally get building science and they get like okay this is just a physics issue and they end up coming to me because they've bought some house in a janky neighborhood in the peninsula that's like a complete piece of junk um and they paid 1.2 million for it which is like absurd and they can't heat and cool it because it's just physically impossible um Mm -hmm. the way it's designed and you know they're kind of like they it doesn't take them long to figure it out and then they do the research and they find Oh, Passive House actually does all that stuff and considers By the it way, there's this a is better way to
0: do it, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of like, you know, it, yeah, but again, I, I end up designing these projects and I have to cobble together different components from, different places and I don't have the selection that's available on other sort of more developed markets and I think that's just shocking me you know
0: it really, sad. Yeah especially when you talk about windows because this is what makes just very little sense to me. The Europeans they sort of perfected a lot of the triple pin a long time ago so <laughs> We should have something comparable to that by now. And there are people who were like, oh, well, we have triple pane windows. And I was like, yeah, that's not exactly the same thing. And I mean, honestly... (laughs) For a long time, you could only get one window, it was the same window everywhere in the United States. And that was super frustrating because I would have rather put in a single pane window on the south side of my house than some of the crappy new construction windows that they were putting in. And it's this constant battle too. And people are like, oh, I did this window replacement and it made my house so much better. And I'm like, no, the way we Mm -hmm. installed your window made it better. The window you got, mm, not really. Yeah, mediocre have, at best. <laughs> they have all this money to market to people to sell these windows that they have. Let's put some of that money into the technology and start competing on a broader scale because, like you said, you know, California is one of the biggest economic areas, but like the United States as a whole is also one of the biggest polluters. Huge. We yeah. need to be recognizing that and talking about this idea of house as a system is, you know, we do a lot of integrated design. I think a lot of people in the building performance world, passive house, you know, whatever, are looking at that and understand that this is a system. But it's so frustrating that even depending on the parts of the country that you're in, you get this stuff where it's like, okay, you know, we designed this, we're like, okay, we need heat pumps. This is kind of roughly where we want to locate them. Now, I, as an architect, I'm not going to run I run an energy model, so I have a pretty good idea where it is, but I'm not going to tell you the heating contractor. This is exactly the size. I'm not a mechanical engineer, but I have a pretty good idea. So if you come Mm -hmm. back to me and your heating system is double the size my energy model says, then I'm going to say, wait a second. Something's wrong here. And that we aren't heating the same way. It's the same with education to our clients, then after they get into these structures, it's like, they're all worried, like, oh, I don't want to turn my heat up above 68. And I'm like, well, if you didn't buy in to the thermostat on the wall, then it's whatever temperature it is at the ceiling. And if you want it to be 68 down here, you're going to have to turn that up. And oh, by the way, it's not pumping 180 degree water through the system. If, if you want it to be 70 degrees it's pumping 70 or 80 degree air because it doesn't have to heat everything to this and so it's it's like a totally different mindset to get them to understand this technology and i'm like it will work just turn it up like this isn't you know in maine we still have a lot of fuel oil which i i hope you don't have any of this in california still but we still no,
1: we have gas we have all everything's all natural Not natural, it's fossil fuel gas, which is equally, you know, it's just another fossil fuel.
0: Exactly. And uh, hard to come by, too, and volatile Mm -hmm. and lots of other things. We used to have fuel oil, and one of the Mm -hmm. things back in the day when we were, when we were maybe more concerned about operational energy and not as focused on, um, embodied energy and carbon and these other things that now have become critically important to solve. Um, we would be like, Oh, set your thermostat back at night. It's like five to eight degree temperature swing. It'll save money. You know, it's like, no, we we don't do that. Set this, set it, forget it. Don't touch it. (laughs) You know, it's it's, it's,
1: no, we, we, We're burdened and sort of held back by all this old systems thinking. And, you know, as you say, the windows is, you know, I've been talking about and writing about and presenting about high performance windows since 2007, 2008. And I live not too far from Lawrence Berkeley Labs. And most of the window performance testing is done at LBNL and I keep going up that hill and I keep showing them, hey, you know, like your your testing protocol that's been embedded in the NFRC testing protocol isn't granular enough and doesn't accurately represent how a window really performs in a building. So it doesn't communicate to the end user how good it actually is and i have to say i i know those guys well and i love them and they've been doing you know good work but it's an old tool that's too blunt for what we need in our market right now and they have also been kind of guilty of pushing this triple pain in the old frame and it's janky triple pain that really is basically not fixing the problem because your frame and your spacer actually end up having just even more of a problem uh, and causing more heat loss than your glass. And, you know, every architect who's worth their salt knows that your project window performance isn't what is on the sticker from NFRC because the window performance changes depending on how big your window is, how many muntin bar, if you have mountain bars in it, how many windows are ganged together. You know, most architects end up putting a whole bunch of windows stacked together with, you know, um, mold frames um you know they do these complicated window uh designs that literally every time you have more frame in your window you lower the perform the overall performance and that never gets accounted for in standard energy models and it's not accurately reflected in the NFRC rating and I could go on at length about that I've I've written and presented on it extensively since 2007 and I just still keep railing at that and nothing's changed
0: <laughs> well so, so while we're talking about that for half a second from with as, as for people who are listening to the podcast is there a place where they can read some of the stuff that you've written
1: um, I, I always put all of my stuff on SlideShare. Okay. Um, so I can send you the links, SlideShare.net. If you just look up Ron Barry Slash SlideShare.net, you will come across all sorts of my, um, uh, presentations. Um, I probably need to write an update on the window stuff because it's coming back again. And, um, You know, we are North American Passive House Network is is now about to launch a series of symposiums focused on all of these specific components. And we're actually going to start with one on ventilation systems because... uh, Because that's critically important. Right now, everybody's finally figuring out that, oh, ventilation, actually is really important to a house and the stupid bath fan extraction, um, you know, systems that we've put in as a band aid sort of excuse for a ventilation system is just
0: horrifying.
1: Um, <laughs> Better than nothing, but not good. <laughs> it's almost worse than nothing. Cause it's just kind of a pretense, um, You know, so I think it sort of lulls people into this complacency that, oh, I've got ventilation. And it's like, no, you've got extraction that's sucking in bad air from God knows where. And you're basically like potentially making the situation even worse than if you had nothing at all. So, because there's no way to
0: filter any of that, you know, and, and especially up here in New England, where we don't have a lot of forced hot air, no matter what kind of system it is that might have, you know, maybe it's only exchanging the air that's inside your house, but it's at least filtering it before it blows it back into the space. Like we don't have that. We don't do that. We have boilers and no air conditioning and so no ventilation. So they have these bath fans and I thought it was great. Alison Bales wrote this whole thing. Are you breathing possum? Because realistically speaking, it could be drawing air in from your basement under your crawl space, your attic sure. space. I mean, none of that. Or like right now you're in California. So the extraction air is actually just sucking in all of your smoke skunk. that you guys have. Yeah,
1: we're we're breathing. <laughs> skunk.
0: Skunk dead rats.
1: Um, you know, what else are in our basement and our crawl space? Oh, garage fumes. I live in an apartment building and we're, you know, with a podium garage below and uh you know, so yeah, all that garage, you know, fumes down below us, you know, God knows where we are getting our air from, but it's, it's right. not being filtered. It's not being filtered. I can tell you, right. except for now, now my indoor, um, you know, I, we, as I say, bought an indoor filter um, and we have no air conditioning either. So, you know, I we have a gas, uh, gas uh, um, fireplace. That's our heating system, which I've turned off um but i'm waiting for the true right now <laughs> yeah i know i keep telling people i'm waiting for the chinese to deliver me a replacement insert for my my gas fireplace insert that has ventilation and um air conditioning like a heat pump air conditioning integrated with my heat pump and i keep i'm, I'm like hey the chinese are going to do this cuz i i don't see any any american uh, hvac companies actually Kind of stepping up to deliver anything that i'm remotely interested in
0: <laughs> well i mean if you look at it we have heat pumps and so for for maine if you want a really approved cold climate heat pump you use a mitsubishi or fujitsu do they sound like american-made companies no oh,
1: i know that's what we use here too um no. so it's like you know but who who's doing Heat recovery ventilation in the U.S. Zenda, uh, and there's a few U.S. companies, but I'm sorry, their their units haven't been properly tested in a way that actually proves that they meet the, you know, sufficient
0: recovery ventilation that I'm that I'm that's comfortable a big with. Thing. Right, so so commissioning of systems. So so not only have we talked a little bit about the house as a system and having to understand, you know, whether it's it's code and you sort of just pick and choose the parts of code that you know apply here or there, unlike our code industry, they seem to have hot points they understand this or they understand that but they're you know ventilation just not even a thing but commissioning so i'm a hers rater as well Mm -hmm. and so part Mm -hmm. of our commissioning on a assigning a hers rating to a structure is if it has a ventilation system we have to test both the supply and the exhaust air at each port not just at the unit itself so it's all well and good if you balance the system at the unit but that doesn't mean anything to actually providing the air that's required to the space that it needs to go and exactly it's very surprising how little testing equipment that is approved for you to actually be able to do that and Zender being the only one that comes out and commissions their systems although I've heard pros and cons about how well they even do it sometimes because here's here's this great zender system but it's still being installed by some american installer generally so it, it, it's a little questionable about how i how mean and they there's don't... a
1: learning curve to that right because it's sure. a totally new system to our market so like absolutely like with no training for how to do that because and it's just like your same dude doing the heat pump you know he's like never seen one of these things before so he's kind of right. like,
0: it's like, what's this octopus thing? Now totally. I forgot to label it, and then I can't remember, was this one extractor, exhaust or where did it go? Because you have all these little tubes and stuff, and it's just, you know, or then you've got this mm-hmm. in the other system. I think Zender's the only one, I think, that is like one tube for each port wherever it goes. But a lot of them have ductwork, you know, so it'll have like yeah. one trunk so we, line. That goes we
1: install to- the Zender's with the, with the ductwork, actually. So we, we Do you? don't use yeah. Yeah, we don't use the Zender tubes because, they, frankly, they're expensive, and we've done them a much simplified ducting design. But it's um, the builder that I've been lucky to work with, um, Alan Gilliland. He, uh, you know, he and our HVAC installer they've kind of devised a really simplified uh, duct layout. But it's very important. Like he and I work right at the schematic design phase to make sure that I've got a layout that can actually accommodate this sort of simplified balanced ducting design um, that we've we found work works really, really well. Um, but you know it's it's really important that the design is so far upstream. You know, our HVAC design is embedded in my schematic design. I don't add it afterwards because it's important that all of my floor joists, my ceiling joists, and my room layout actually accommodates a smart HVAC system. So honestly, HVAC layout is a schematic design phase in all of my projects. And architects typically haven't really been sent that message yet. So it's like, um, you know, I think, and it's not taught in school,
0: right? No, it's not taught in school. In fact, I mean, until I started doing energy consulting, I didn't know anything about heating heating systems. And I mean, luckily for me, me, that was something I was really, really interested in early on in my career. So I was pretty young when I learned that, but there are there are plenty of architects out there who still are not, you know, you, you get onto big commercial projects and you have a whole team that's broadened and it's it's a much bigger thing. But when you're talking residential, I mean yeah. residential MEP is kind of a thing that doesn't really exist. Non existent except, <laughs> exactly. except for people say, like, oh, in these, you know, really big multi million dollar projects, but sometimes not even those. And that's no, really not really depressing. So yeah. because it's no and I work critical. in Google.
1: It's very critical. You know, my projects range from, you know, I would say in the Bay area, there's, you know, basically no custom homes in the Bay area are affordable um, or could be considered that it's just like, and our market is just nutty. um, So completely skewed, but, you know, I would say I, I work for clients who are not in the high end kind of price range bracket. You know, I, the projects I work on are between like eight hundred thousand to maybe one point two 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 million max, which in California is kind of like middle class huh, middle class housing. You know, right. Which kind of just, right. I mean you, you have know, just to, to put it on it for special, your yeah. yeah. Everything's just nutty, yeah. You know, I mean like right. as I say, a starter home in California in the Bay Area is one point two and that's a teardown. Right. So, you know, but, you know, it's all relative, right? Um, and, you know, so we don't have mechanical engineers on our uh, projects. I work with a builder and our HVAC contractor and we, you know, as I say, we design the system. Um, so, you know, and then everything's integrated, ventilation uh, and heating and cooling. And we do, actually, we have found and, you know, I have to give full credit, Alan's really the, the HVAC um, brains in our operation. But, you know, I, everything's integrated. So I, I design the layout and, you know, and he kind of does all the sizing and um, makes sure that everything's going to be balanced and, you know, all the supply and return ducts. And, you know, I've got to like the point where I now get to design where my diffusers go. And I get to make the diffusers be part of the architecture, which I kind of am enjoying.
0: <laughs> right. It's so much better than otherwise they end yeah. up in the most random. I'd like, and I understand sometimes there are functional placements that work better, but sometimes I think they just end up where it's easy, which can be very detracting from the overall architectural project. And as much as our clients care about all of the health, the safety, the reasons why we do it. At the Mm -hmm. end, when we're all done, they just want the house to perform and to look good. And so when you have this one weird performance thing that they can still see, and it's just like the oddball in the room, you're like, Uh okay, we had had a little bit more conversation here. We could have changed this. Uh, And so I totally agree. I don't, I don't know why architects aren't more involved in all of the MEP stuff so that we can't, and and sometimes we don't always get our way. Like it might just be really too difficult. Like you've got a beam somewhere structurally has to go there. Can't poke a hole in it. I get it. Totally. It was just a conversation. (laughs) mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, no. And I'll get to a job side and just even the stupid little things like where the diffuser is doesn't align where the light fixture is, and I'm like, no, just move it up six inches, and then you've got this nice clean alignment, and all of the diffusers are also on the same level. I mean, literally, like he doesn't give it, you know, the no. Head. I had a he human- doesn't care about where the diffuser is. He just needs it somewhere there in that wall, and I'm like, here. Yeah. If I'm there on the site, I get to tell him like no, or I, I make sure I do a careful elevation drawing which doesn't always get looked at, but, um,
0: <laughs> yes, that's true. There's truth to that too. <laughs> and I was like, God damn what
1: I spent hours, like making sure that making sure this lined up perfectly. Totally. Cause I want this clean, like line up with fixture, diffuser, fixture, diffuser. And, um, you know, the ones that are successful, I'm always like, yes. And then, You'll laugh at this one, but I had like an architectural photographer come and take pictures and he asked me, do you want me to Photoshop out the diffusers? And I'm like, no,
0: (laughs) no, I want to see them. I want them to be. I think those of us too in the energy world start to think of those things as as objects that we like to see or or even that we get used to seeing. So we use duckless mini splits a lot of times to, you know, wall hungs. For yeah. me, a duckless mini split is not an eyesore. I think it's great. It looks great, except for I did have one, you know, like you. I have this duckless mini split, right? And I have two long windows on either side of it. And do you think that mini split was centered between the two windows? <laughs> probably not <laughs> i mean come on it was like, i know it's not that hard like but... six inches or something it wasn't oh. it wasn't even like you know it was off with because we had 24 inch on center framing like there wasn't a reason why it was off by it was just you know as where it came in oh, oh my god that would to drill that too but
1: but, you know, that's sort of architect's eyes. You know, we look at things very differently and we notice that stuff. Like right. my wall hung many split that I had designed this very careful placement and a sort of a box that kind of framed it in in this, you know, great room so that it looked intentional and it looked like I, you know, it wasn't just an afterthought. It got installed just slightly uh off. <laughs> okay. it's, like, it's like our eyes are trained to notice level and like straight. Like You're we like, can pick that stuff uh... up because we look at that stuff all day. It's just like ever so slightly. And like every time I go to that project, I kind of am like, hmm, like yeah, guess he didn't put a level on that. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's like nobody else notices and I'm like it just sits there and I'm like okay like am I gonna lose my mind by you know like getting you know it's like it's one of those things that it works just fine the client hasn't noticed it the contractor definitely hasn't noticed it the HVAC guy didn't but I do <laughs>
0: <laughs> of wonder if this is why you know in some cases um unfortunately the trades kind of have this bad name for some reason people don't associate like artistry and craftsmanship with the trades right now they used to lots of beautiful structures the preservationists who are trying to keep all this stuff but like architects still seem to have some kind of clout because maybe it's because we care about those things but like you walk into a house and the electrician puts the light switches and they're all kind of like this as you go down like how hard was it to snap a chalk line and hang them all at the same height like whichever Mm -hmm. height you picked i could Mm -hmm. be comfortable with even if it you know but yeah (laughs) where's the attention to detail the craftsmanship the stuff that makes the next generation proud to join in. want to training.
1: preserve it
0: yeah yeah and so that's part of the you know an issue that that i have in you know in in all the trades whether you know you're the builder the subcontractor you know hvac whatever like i think building science is super cool and maybe it's just because i'm really interested in it but as yeah. an architect i see this as the opportunity to be part of the next phase of building you know and get into this and so I'm really struck by the people who are like no you know my details don't work anymore because I have to meet some you know code or some something or other I'm like this is the opportunity for us to recreate those things in a better way why is that not exciting to us well
1: they haven't owned their design in an integrated way they've left all the other stuff that's now they're seeing as thwarting their you know beautiful like you know creation they haven't actually gone down the line and made sure that all those other systems are integrated in the design and work together with it so I think you know when I hear that I always say okay well that's because you're you failed as an architect to actually design your house as a system and the aesthetics of it actually are only one element. But if you, as you and I have done, go and actually start to own all the other elements of a building uh, construction process, which are the HVAC, you know, all the other systems, the mechanical, the electrical, and you get to detail those and make sure they all align and integrate, then you won't have that problem. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, you know, because you'll already have understood them. And I think, you know, to your point about the the trades sort of having lost the, the the craftsmanship, I think it's because it's going back to that that issue that I identified earlier with our whole industry has been siloed into these, you know, these uh, components of the building delivery process where architects have, have sort of decided or been trained to only own the aesthetics and like how the light fixtures go where, and then the trades, you know, they're component, you know, compartmentalized into plumbing, electrical HVAC and none of them see the other the impact of each other's work on the end product so you know but that's the role of the architect the architect is supposedly the overseer and supposed to integrate all of those systems into their design and the architect doesn't you know has has sort of relegated you know or um, you know left that role to the contractor and the contractor just needs to get an efficient job done you know and schedule everybody so that the project gets finished on time you know their role is to literally manage the construction process but our role is to actually make sure that it's all integrated and included you know as a system and you know architects have abdicated that role and until we we, Take ownership of it again and learn about all these other systems, and basically go back to the craft and the you know the master builder uh, role where we actually are involved in the construction phase then you know I'm it's like i I hear that same moan all the time, and I just think like' well, go and do your job properly
0: <laughs> yeah no I agree we have either relegated it to contractors, we've been pushed from from that presence, I don't know, um, in the residential world. I don't know exactly when that happened. Um, but it's fairly common for a for, for a client never to come to an architect to begin with, just to you know go up to a builder, hey, can you build this for me? And we need yeah. to re-educate the client base as to why some of these things are important. And sure there's I I always say this on the podcast. People have heard me say this a lot of times. I have a really unpopular opinion about lots of things. And one of those things is maybe everybody shouldn't build (laughs) a new construction home. If you can't afford to do it correctly. And that we're building building stock that we then tear down. What's that doing for our environment? And Mm -hmm. I, I, As an architect, I I love old things. I love the stuff that came before us. But what is the point of preserving these things that we have if we're not going to be here in how many years? Because we just continue to do. And if you look at societies that did preserve the things that they had that were old, they took care them they lasted a long time there are wood doors in italy that have been there for 500 years that someone just painted as often as it needed to be painted you know Instead, here, we're just like, well, we'll just push it down and we'll start over. And what kind of impact does that have to our environment and our society and the stuff that we have? And sure, have we made mistakes in building science as we improve it? Absolutely. You know, the worst thing that you want to hear as a contractor or an architect is like, oh, we made this choice in the building and it rotted for some water management detail, right? Obviously. So in the 70s, when they were building sick building syndromes, they, you know, they didn't know they were changing the house as the system, which is why it's so critically important for the building trades to understand the house as a system. Because we now have products and things in our environment and they're not my favorite thing to say when people ask me, Oh, what should I use or what should I do? is like, well, it depends. I mean, I need to look at the whole like I don't <laughs> say know. that all the time. And they like, want to know cost, right? Like how much right. is it gonna cost me to do this? You're
1: like, oh Lord, yeah.
0: Really, I don't know, how much is it going to cost you not to do this? How important is that granite countertop if you're sick every year and you have to pay the doctor bill because we didn't do anything about the fact that you have a wet basement or, you know, that you you didn't do a ventilation system and your bath fan is sucking air in through your attic insulation, which, you know, I mean, sure, it would be great if we thought that no rodents and no critters ever lived in our structures, but that's a totally unrealistic scenario anybody who's we haven't
1: sealed them out from them (laughs) they all could get in
0: you know it's like (laughs)
1: oh oh sealing air sealing oh that's gonna make you a toxic building and you're kind of like oh no it's just gonna keep the dust and the you know and the
0: smoke houses need to breathe I'm like no they don't houses need to dry people need to breathe so there's two different things
1: (laughs) yeah no it's yeah we you know we we've all been struggling with the same challenges and you know trying to find um you know be supported to actually deliver these buildings is still you know a rare a rare thing here and I think that's you know what people are realizing you know as you say we've been building cheap and dirty and I have to say even our green, a lot of green building advocates have been pushing what I call the mediocre solutions, um, which really don't, as you say, really factor in that bigger long-term, you know, big picture solution because they don't account for the, you know, our our economic models and our cost-effectiveness analysis and our return on investment god if there's anything in construction that drives me nutty it's like what's the return on investment and you're like look how come you apply that to, to this but you don't apply that to your car your you know all the other tv and the refrigerator and the other you know, expensive bling that you add onto your house that you, you know, Oh, but your windows have to have a return on investment.
0: There's a common misconception that your house is an asset, but it is a liability. And that is, (laughs) that is a mindset that too many people have, unless you own your house outright and you Mm -hmm. are making some kind of income On your house, it is still a liability. It remains a liability until you sell it and you get some money for it. Then it's an asset, because otherwise you still have to pay taxes on it. You still have to pay maintenance and upkeep on it. Like there's, there's this thing. It's like, oh, we realize that with our cars. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and they depreciate or whatever. I like, I, I can't seem to get the mindset. And this is the most expensive thing that you'll probably single purchase buy, right? Your house is probably the most expensive thing you own. Yeah. Why is that not, not worth the percentage to do it right the first time? Sure. There are some things that you can change. We've talked a lot on the BS and beer show about, you know, planning for renovation in mind because people like to renovate, and do other things. It's this okay. whole great idea of the insulation layers and then the service cavity. So like, okay, you want to renovate something? Just don't get in my walls. And you know, there's, mm-hmm. There's so many things that can, can go into that, but we haven't realized that this is an expensive liability that we get ourselves into, which is why I have the op- unpopular yeah. opinion that maybe not everybody should own or build a single family residence. And that if we have to be providing better housing for people, there are ways to do it cheaper and more cost effectively than one at a time, single family Eat. Hallelujah, girlfriend. You're singing my song. <laughs> <laughs> this so... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard and it's a struggle and it's, you know, the, from the environmental perspective is starting with something that is existing the best way to go. That really depends on how much work you have to do with it, how well it was constructed to begin with. I mean, there's some beautiful houses built in the 1800s that have been upkept and are prime for a deep energy retrofit with natural materials and cutting out petroleum-based stuff. And there are some really crappy things built in the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands that yeah. as much as you that hate won't to say
1: last it, as long as the thirty year mortgage. Right. I uh, I know projects exactly like that. I go into them and I see there are these monstrosities built in gated communities here in California and they are absolute junk and you know ridiculous. 4,000 square foot, 5,000 square foot, and they've got like the surface bling. But underneath the paint, they are absolute rubbish. And I just keep like, it's just appalling that we, you know, our culture still thinks that that's the measure of success is to own one of those. You know, there's really, unfortunately, not enough awareness about how, um, toxic and you know what a what a liability those things really are um not just to the owner but to our society as a whole um you know we haven't really connected the dots on that yet and I think you know people are now starting to wake up to that but you know your your rant about the single family home not being the solution I you know I couldn't agree with you more um and are you know but unfortunately it's you know it's the single family home is starting to now be a political um conversation i don't know if you've been tracking our uh the i don't really generally like to go into those topics but you know once a single family um you know, suburban neighborhoods become politicized and it's, you know, then it's polarizing us in terms of like, oh, we want to hang on to our way of life. And it was like, actually, if you look at early American cities and how the traditional like city model evolved here, they were compact, um, multi, you know, duplex, quadplexes, houses where people rented rooms in, you know, boarding houses, um, much more compact apartments, row houses, you know, all the great old neighborhoods in the Bay Area were built around transit systems, um, you know, cable, uh, cable car, uh, rail systems. And that's what made them interesting. And they had little corner stores where people could kind of buy their, you know, their milk and their bread and their newspaper. And those houses are still, you know, in good shape and, you know, well-loved and maintained. Um, And the suburban sprawl that we built here in California is really, you know, the um, supercar-dependent land-use model that we don't talk about enough in our decarbonization conversations. Uh, our decarbonization conversations are all now in California, all around getting rid of gas, which I'm fully in favor of. It's like heat pump nation, which I'm, as I say, fully in favor of. But until we also look at our land use planning, our land use models, and our design review guidelines, which is my, you know, it's like, which are absolutely sabotaging all the decarbonisation policies that I've been trying, you know. Who cares if you've got a whole subdivision of all electric homes? Because those homes are still relying on cars and they are reliant on, you know, they just can't buy natural, you know, by just the very nature of their detached single familiness are not as efficient as, you know, a three-story multifamily building with six or eight units in a neighborhood that has a park and a, and a you know, light rail or bicycles. Um, so, you know, until we look not just as our, at our buildings, you know, our house is a system, but our neighborhoods as a system and our cities as a system and our policies as a system, (laughs) um, we really aren't even scratching the surface of what we can, what we can really accomplish and what's, you know, all our product, our natural products, the, the fantastic straw wall that you have behind you. None of those get to be really efficient if we're just, you know, building detached straw bale, lovely homes in you know pristine rural communities. That's should be for farm farm workers only. Um, and our firestorms in California—all these rural communities that are getting burned out year after year after year—and insurance companies will no longer insure those homes, so they literally can't rebuild. And all of those people have to be housed, and we have to house them in cities. And our cities are blocking that from happening because they still, even San Francisco, is seventy three percent single family home zoning.
0: Yeah, and you're something like two stories average or something like that. So, so your Stupid. traditional your traditional building is not, you know, is not city. Um, and the straw <laughs> wall behind me is um, all about. I don't know if you've re- read Bruce King's book, The New Carbon Architecture. And we were talking about, you know, the, all this money that we've put into researching petroleum based products. Why couldn't we have figured out? We build, um, apparently, across the world, we grow um, enough straw to cover all of Australia, like 720 hectares Mm -hmm. of straw or something and what they can do with it and how they've used it in panelization with CLT to build, I think nine stories is like the height that they've got, you know, like, so how do we transform these products into, into cities? But I think the biggest miss that we had with all this urban sprawl was the best part about going to European cities is being able to get on the bus or the train and go pretty much anywhere right? Or walk. Yes, they all walk, which, which is a whole other health crisis issue that we have surrounding what we currently do. Hypertension, sitting all the time, not getting anywhere. Like this constant fascination with like crazy exercise programs that nobody says to like, just walk somewhere. (laughs) Like we live a mile from the post office the other day. I had to mail something. So I walked to the post office and yeah, it's uphill, but who cares? (laughs) You know? So We don't walk. And I,
1: and Bruce's work is fantastic, and I actually know Bruce, and uh, you know he's he's a California fellow Californian. But here what I what I keep going back to is our building codes actually prevent systems like straw walls and the panelized wall straw systems that I have brought speakers out from Europe, like years ago to talk about this. There's a new one getting, you know, a new company launching that's actually trying to build them. And passive house community is super, you know, ahead of the curve. And you know, we all know about this, and we've been trying to get these in our buildings for a while. But again, there's no, um, you know, getting them approved through all the the fire codes, the UL uh, listing, through the building departments is a major uphill battle and in fact what i'm seeing is our energy codes are even penalizing those sort of innovations because they make it so they make the time frame for them to be accepted and recognized so long that all these companies that launch these wonderful products they can't stay in business you know for 13 years and eke out a, you know, eke out a living before they become recognized. And so, right.
0: well, and a lot of those companies don't have, like you had said earlier is it's not just thinking about your building or your house as a system, but it's, you know, the building codes as a system as part of the system, but policy as well. So like, if you look at this, they don't have, you know, these, these companies who are maybe trying to do something that is more grassroots or, you know, more about, they don't have the money and backing behind it to do all the policy lobbying that allows it to be possible. And that's what the hardest, but like part of the reason that maybe we don't have better windows in the United States is because the people who are currently making windows have a lot of money who can sway policy. And it's like,
1: exactly. And they actually Mm -hmm. Even if
0: they agree with it, you know, they like, well, these other, you know, things, it's just the same with the um, National Home Builders Association seems to always try to strike a lot of the energy code stuff out of the codes. And it's so frustrating to me. Like, how is this national organization not the one pushing for building better, more durable structures? I don't get it.
1: Well, you know, actually, I've started to realize the national home builders that always push back against policy improvements. If you think about it from their perspective, all they're pushing back against is change. And in fact, if we made a really, uh, if we made our policy more transparent, and we actually set an end goal of where we need to go, and what we need to build to. I'm betting that the home builders will actually say, okay, you've made it clear that this is where we're going to finally end up and we'll start to build there. Because what I see over and over, what's more problematic from their perspective is in California, we have a three-year code cycle, which is basically a hamster wheel that we all have to get on and run around for three years and figure out, okay, what's required now and what's the product we have to install and how do we change our drawings and how do we change our building systems? And the people actually who also have to regulate that same energy code have to do the same. And so they're scrambling every three years to get on the stupid hamster wheel. And then guess what? Once you finally get really settled and you know what the hell you're doing, Oh, the next three-year code cycle comes along and you've got to get back on the hamster wheel and do the same stupid cycle over and over again. And any business person that looks at that and thinks that, oh, I'm going to willingly accept another change every three years and never have a clear uh, end goal in uh, identified, honestly, I have to say, I'm now at the point where I'm like, no wonder the Home Builders Associations never want any change. And I think, and I've seen this in British Columbia um, with the step code, where they basically transformed the code structure for their reach codes. And they said, there's the end goal. And they identified exactly what the targets were. And by the way, one of the options on that, end goal is passive house certification. And then they dialed back the steps and they said, okay, this is where we are right now. By 2032, that's where we want everybody to get to. And here are the incremental steps. And you can decide, each city can say which one of the steps we want to you know, sign on to being our baseline. But anybody who wants to go ahead, they're the targets. And manufacturers actually also saw that and they said, oh, okay, now we know what it is. They now have five certified Passive House windows being made in British Columbia. So it's transformed the industry, not just for the top end of the spectrum, the people going to Passive House already, but everybody in between can now access a choice of much higher performance products and they can see, they can also, builders can also differentiate what their, product, what code level their product is at. And buyers can say, oh my God, you're just building down to this bottom end, but the builder next door is building to the top end. And I can now choose which one of those I want. And that is completely transforming the market. And that is what I'm advocating really strongly for is actually for all of our code um, uh, frameworks from, you know, land use to design review and energy codes to actually finally just pick an end destination that we could all know what that is and decide whether we want to do it now or in five years' time and so that everybody knows where the hell we're finally going because the three-year hamster wheel is a nightmare and any rational business would push back on that because you can't make a business plan and you can't actually do an efficient product if you never know where you're eventually heading. So it's just as simple as that. Pick a goddamn destination and let us know what the hell it is.
0: <laughs> well, And... We truthful. can sway on podcasts, can't we? <laughs> yeah. To be truthful about the three-year code cycle, too, is it's a little bit subjective because it's not nationally recognized or required. So, like you said about the step code and them being able to kind of choose, it seems that states and jurisdictions within states are then allowed to choose. So so here's the really depressing news that you'll love to hear. In Maine, we only just adopted 2015 as our code. We were working on 2009 until last year, and they didn't actually adopt the 2015 IECC, which means it's still the 2009 IECC. So if they get governmental pushback about eventually having to catch up, it's going to be a really steep learning curve from 2009 to what 2018 is currently available, right? 2021, 2021's in the works, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. so if you if and california really jump, has its
1: own code which is another right, you a,
0: yeah you have title 24 and a whole bunch of other things uh, involved yep. and new york um i was registered in new york for a while has their own stretch code and there's a bunch of other things so like some places mm-hmm. have taken that especially places with larger cities who who really need, severely need to make a bigger impact because of the number of people they have they've taken that and then they've applied it to all of the rural areas outside of that who give a lot of pushback, like, well, why do we have to do this? It's all based on the city. And I'm like, no, really, everybody has to do it. Just get on board, move forward. But we really missed the mark when we when we missed transportation as part of it. And we had all these highways, and we didn't have any other way to to get anywhere. And now we just have yeah. more and more people because it's great that science has progressed. But you know, in the 1800s, people lived to be know 40 or 50 right now people mm-hmm. are living to be 90 and you know yep. like, I forget what the U.S. population is but it's it's a lot it's you know and, and you look at your city uh, uh, you know and you say like you can't afford to take any more people because of the way it's built like they're just there's not enough well room it's just zoned badly <laughs> yeah it's just zoned right? badly that's not a function of like we
1: have plenty of room Right. Well, you know, we've just got all these surface parking lots
0: still, which is like, come on, like that's not a city. Because people don't want to walk. People don't want (laughs) to walk uphill. A block down the street. Like, when did we get so bad that we can't walk? Like, there's this whole thing in strip malls or whatever it about the incline of the parking lot, and it can't be steeper than a certain incline because people don't like to walk uphill. I'm like, say what? No. no it's just crazy we've, we've, we've really disconnected like... from a lot of things we've disconnected from the environment we've disconnected from farming we don't know where our food sources come from I think that was really a big part of the pandemic is like what do we do if the grocery store closes like where does our food actually come from like we've, we've disconnected mm-hmm. from public transportation <laughs> and other people right? You know, like we all live in these suburbs and we drive into our garage and we go into our house and we don't talk to our neighbors. And I just did a podcast last week on sustainable communities. And you know, what makes these communities so inviting? Because people don't know what they like anymore, which is really sad Like, someone came to me and they're like, oh, I want this 2,500 square foot house. I'm like, square footage is just a number that the tax department gets to use to tax you on your house. Let's talk about what you actually need, what you want, how it functions. And if I'm any good as an architect, I will give you everything you need and want within whatever the square footage ends up being. Maybe it's more than you thought. Maybe it's less than you thought. I don't know, but Uh let's not talk square footage because that's an arbitrary number that somebody told you you needed and it's not really applicable. So Mm -hmm. I mean, there are people who live probably in San Francisco too, but people who live in New York city have like 400 square foot apartments and they live there because they want to be in New York city. So yeah, because the rent- they have parks they-
1: everywhere outside. So they don't need a yard and they have, you know, like everything opens till like, six eight all 24 seven so you know you can go out and get groceries anytime of
0: night. you can walk to the grocery store because there's a corner grocery store every you know <laughs> however many blocks so you you <laughs> can be I lived in Rome for six months and like we didn't buy two or three weeks worth of groceries we went to the farmer's mm-hmm. market every day and we bought fresh produce and we went back and we cooked it you know it's like yeah. this mm-hmm. this connection to how we Store things like do I don't need seven years worth of canned goods. Every once in a while, I a look in, in Costco a
1: closet, right?
0: Yeah, a, I mean,
1: three hundred rolls of toilet paper.
0: <laughs> I mean, technically, I do buy my toilet paper a case at a time from Who Gives a Crap, and that is because it comes not wrapped in plastic. <laughs> so during the whole toilet paper pandemic, pandemic, it wasn't a thing for me, and that's not because awesome. I wanted you know, I, I needed to have like Love. six months worth of toilet paper, but because I was trying to reduce plastic in our household in a certain way. So I got a case of toilet paper that it's came in. Awesome name too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's fantastic. So, uh, so luckily during the COVID pandemic, toilet paper was not a thing in our house.
1: <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Oh my goodness.
1: Yeah. No, I don't think it is, was really in anybody's house. It was only it in everybody's mind, you know, it's like, you know, it was like the whole bread making phenomenon. I think that was kind of speaks to your comment about, you know, people kind of panicked about where their food's coming from and everybody suddenly decided like, Oh my God, I've got to make like the, be, be able to provide the staple of like all like diets across the globe is like bread. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like, how can I make it? You know, I, I you know, we all went there, right. Like right? You know, now I've given up. I'm like, God, I can buy the best bread down the road at, Tartine Bakery and I can I still did get it. I a while. Um,
0: I did it for a while too because it's fun. I grew up in a farming family. I actually like you know cooking and canning and, and some of those mm-hmm. things. And I did it for a while. And then I thought, oh my gosh, quarantine fifteen! Like we never eat this much bread, but because we <laughs> were making it, we were like, we're oh we're eating all this bread. I was like, what are we? I think that's doing? what the
1: nineteen is on COVID. It's like COVID nineteen. It's like the collective amount of pounds that the household's going to add to our body weight. Like <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh,
0: yeah oh that's totally true well we've been talking for about an hour so I don't want to take up too much of your time and I apologize for being late to the show um but I always like to end the podcast with any do you have any resources or books or anything that you think um in general and my uh listeners are actually builders other architects and homeowners so if you have any resources where you're like this is something everyone should read or research or follow um what's your sure i thought okay so
1: two things the best thing i ever did for my architectural training and for myself was to pay take the certified passive house consultant designer training it was the foundation that i built everything that i you know do and how i view the world through that lens and it was you know, 10 days back then, and now it's five days, and you can do it all online. So NAPHNetwork.org. I am the board president, and we do the best, amazing training with certification available in the US using IP units. Um, and it's basic fundamental building science. It applies to every kind of building that you're going to design, whether you do Passive House or not. Um, and it really um, is just, you know, the best investment I made in my own career. So um, that would be the takeaway that I would say, uh, NAPHNetwork.org and go and sign up for training because we are doing them online and uh, you know, Massachusetts actually is subsidizing those, so thank you, Mass Saves, paying fifty percent of your uh, tuition fee, uh, which Nicer New- did it a while ago, and we're hoping they'll re-up that. Um, that was
0: actually when I did it. Um, I have so many acronyms after my name. I just don't use any of them anymore. But uh, when I was living <laughs> in New York and Iserda was subsidizing it, I thought uh, I had a ton of energy background at the time. I had been doing it, uh, energy auditing for a long time. I had done, you know, Building Performance Institute. Yep. I had done hers ratings, had done a lot of things. And I thought, I'm going to learn something from Passive House that I don't already know. And so I'm Mm going to take this training too. And so I knew all the underlying building science stuff. I already understood the physics and why it was important. But I think you're right. The things that really struck home with me was Mm -hmm. how windows are evaluated because I don't think that's really talked about in very many other uh, energy programs. and how important it is for the mechanicals and ventilation to be part of the entire integrated design
1: and how when
0: you're building passive and you're building these super insulated structures how you heat cool and ventilate your space is different than the traditional methods Um, and so those were the two takeaways that I really had having already come into it with a, with a bunch of building science knowledge. If you don't have any building science knowledge, it's phenomenal across the board. So. Yeah. No, it just sort of
1: synthesized everything in a way for me, you know, that I had the same kind of, I came kind of out of green building background and looking at straw bale and all these different materials and, you know, that kind of like put it all in a cohesive framework that, you know, had a tool that I could also use that actually supported that. (laughs) It's just (laughs) like, oh my God, imagine, like actually having, you know, not only the training, but the tool that you can use and I can do it myself. And, you know, so yeah, exactly. Holistic, integrated. And then actually, if you do want another, like if you don't want to do the training, this book, can you see Passive House Design, it's by Details Magazine. And the authors are, uh, God, sorry, the lighting's pretty bad, isn't it? Um, Roberto Gonzalo and Rainer Valentin. This is probably the best kind of primer on that it covers and has just super sexy projects and details. Look at all those section drawings. I don't know if the lighting's pretty good, but you know, yeah, that's great real real architectural like actual information um of course pictures but then in the front it's kind of got all the stuff that we talked about about how you know the form factor and uh-huh. it also talks about benefits of electrification and neighborhood um you know shared systems lots of like beautiful beautiful projects so uh-huh. You know, kind of that sort of architectural, like monography, sexy, lovely drawing stuff that we were all sold on in architecture school, um, but with real technical, like information added
0: into it. Awesome. (laughs) I love it. That's, That's the best of both worlds, right? things that catch your attention because they look really cool, the technical exactly. knowledge behind it and then being able to combine the two because as architects we're visual people. So we want to read it, but then I want to see it and then I want to go, "Oh, aha, I got I it." Want that. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yes. No, all
1: really stunning designs and, you know, not your hippie granola stuff that everybody goes that, "Oh, you know, that's a really good idea, but I don't want to live in that." <laughs>
0: Well, that was part of what got me into it. Um, When I started my own business in 2009, I thought energy efficient buildings do not have to be the ugly things that people associate with energy efficient buildings, because especially in 2009, 11 years ago, people were still seeing those like 1970s houses with like the glass front and the weird trom walls and the like, and I'm like, and they were they all kind of like and condensing on the inside and molding <laughs> yeah. on the floors
1: and windows and you're like, like oh my god yeah like, this is a no, the idea. best idea <laughs> yeah lots of them with those glass water containers that were like passive solar heating that like all the algae had grown inside them there's a whole bunch of them in berkeley like that i used to, i used to live in berkeley and like there's a gazillion of those and like you drive by them and you see all the the condensation on the inside of the glass and like all the water just like running down the inside and then the algae loaded glass waters you know heat storage janky systems and you're like Ooh, disaster you're like oh no
0: and i mean more. more power to them they were trying something different that just wasn't it so no, yeah nice try
1: <laughs> thanks <Fail>. but
0: no <laughs> <laughs> so we've learned a lot since then. And so that was part of, you know, Maine actually has a really great building science community, which is phenomenal.
1: You guys are awesome up there. I, uh, I love my, but... my visit up there. No, because you know what? The thing that actually drives efficiency in Maine is that you actually have real weather. And like, you know, you've, <laughs> you can't That's survive true. in the house. It's not true so true. When insulated. it's negative
0: 15 in February and you don't have any insulation in your house, it's cold.
1: Exactly. Or you're spending your whole day like feeding your stupid wood stove fire to actually just like stay alive, right? Like, And or that gets
0: cold really fast. We when we first moved, um, my husband is from Maine. But when we first moved here, after we decided we flipped a coin, he won. We moved to his side of the family. We moved to Maine. It was great. Um, we bought a house that was built in 1924, and I don't remember whether it was in like '09 or when the market was really really bad, right? And the cost mm-hmm. of fuel oil went up to like five dollars a gallon, and we were young in our early twenties and it costs $4,000 to heat our house. Like that is a major factor for people to be like, Oh, okay. We got to do something different here because now thankfully we had sort of set up where we put money aside every month and we had kind of planned for, you know, but if you don't plan for that, that winter time when it comes around and it's nine months of heating season and the cost of fuel oil is not something that you can do anything about you are subjected to that so yeah it's well and just, just a reminder of,
1: yeah and the inverse of that in california my family out in walnut creek their house costs them six to eight hundred bucks a month to air condition. So it's sort of exactly the same but in a different climate and exactly yeah. the same solutions apply to how to build the building better to actually eliminate that cost. And, you know, again, nobody talks about that. And, you know, as you said, you know, we buy these houses because they're 4,000 square foot and they've got that granite countertop. We don't look at how they operate and like where they were actually even comfortable in them because that's not on the radar. Um, So, you know, we could talk all day and I do have to go. Um, I do
0: too. I'm sorry. I'm just enjoying this so much. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for talking to me. We'll have to get together again when the travel bans are over and we eventually make it out there. If if California hasn't burned, uh, please be safe. As you're dealing oh, with. Oh, and your... some of my
1: favorite people live in Maine. So I would love to come and hang out with
0: uh, Absolutely. You know, Chris
1: Corson and um, Ted Benson and Emma, Naomi and mm-hmm. the whole Passive House community in, in Maine is fantastic people. So um, yeah,
0: fantastic
1: to hang out with you, Emily.
0: It was great to meet you finally, having you on and... the show. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the E3 podcast. I hope you guys have been enjoying these episodes as much as I have. I've had some really interesting guests, a lot of great professionals in the building science and architecture and building realm. So, thank you to all the guests that have been on. If you're enjoying the podcast, like and share on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or leave me a comment on the website. And if there's somebody you'd like to hear from or you'd like me to have on the podcast, send me an email, emily at matramarch.com. Otherwise, have a fantastic weekend and we'll see you again next week.